Hi, I'm Janet B. I'm recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Welcome. Um, lots of new people here, which is really nice and makes me wonder about what I should do about the talk I had prepared, um, which was on the nine step promises. So I'm going to just go and start in and then we're going to kind of backtrack a little and just kind of see where we end up. So for anyone who has a book, we are on page 83 with those beautiful promises. And the very first sentence says, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom, a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. Okay, that's just for starters. That we didn't even finish that paragraph yet. And there we came here, right? If you're anything like me, you came here just because you wanted to stop overeating. Um, but we get that plus so much more. But let's look at the first sentence. It says, if, and I would say if and only if, we are painstaking about this phase of our recovery, we will be amazed before we are halfway through about this phase of our development. What does that mean? if we're painstaking about this phase of our development, what does that mean? Some people may, um, it says, if we're painstaking, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. Does that mean halfway through our amends, halfway through the steps, right? When we're on like step four and a halfway through our fifth step, what does it mean halfway through? And I would start out and say, it doesn't matter that these are the promises we are going to reap at some point, provided we are painstaking about this phase of our development. Um, someone who introduced herself before said, suggestions don't work with me, it's gotta be directions. So what's this phase of our development that's gotten us to the bottom paragraph on page 83, where we start having promises that use words like peace, serenity, no more economic insecurity, and then realizing God is doing things for us. You imagine that? Like the creator who flung the stars in the sky is actually helping me with my life. So what's this phase of our development they're talking about? So um, I'm just gonna briefly, or maybe not so briefly, talk about what is this phase of our development that we have to go through in order to get these glorious promises? And the first thing we need, um, you know, the book talks about it. It doesn't say in order to start the steps, you need to put down the alcohol. It says in order to start the steps, you have to be willing to go to any lengths. And that's at the very beginning of the chapter five, how it works. If you have decided you want what we have, and what do we have? A spiritual experience based on working these steps where the food obsession is removed, where God has come in and kind of rewired our hearts so we stop being so selfish and self-centered. I mean, they're telling me that I'm gonna start thinking the way God thinks. So he's rewiring my heart, my mind, and the way I think about food so if you want what we have, well, that's a big yes, right? Right off the bat and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then, then and only then are you ready to take certain steps. So what are the steps we have to take? 
Um, step one says we admitted we were powerless over food and our lives had become unmanageable. What does it mean to be powerless over food? I mean, it's not like I have a bag of potato chips I'm trying to stay away from. And this like big hairy monster comes in, grabs my wrist and shoves it into the bag of potato chips. That's not how it works, right? And when you think about it, it's really a hard concept to say, I am powerless. What does it mean to be powerless? Well, our book talks about that in some detail in chapters two and three, and really on page 24, it says the most powerful desire to stop is of absolutely no avail, which makes sense, right? Who of us would go up to a cancer patient and say, you must not have a powerful desire to stop or you wouldn't have cancer anymore. We would never say that, that would be so mean. But yet somehow we think that about ourselves, right? That, you know, and people used to say that to me, well, if she really wanted to stop, she could stop. I wanted to stop more than anything in the world, but lack of desire isn't our problem. It's lack of power. And then they tell us what the lack of power is. We've lost the power of choice with food. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. And it says we're unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago, and we have no defense. So they're telling me basically that my powerlessness is basically a broken memory problem. My memory can't defend me. And that's kind of dense and weird, right? Like I came in here to stop binging. What are you talking to me about my, my memory? My memory is just fine. You know, as I get older, I may not remember phone numbers um, the way I used to 20 years ago, but my memory is pretty good. But not when it came to food. And people have the saying, keep the memory green. I will tell you that phrase, that slogan, and that concept is not in the big book. In fact, it's antithetical, that's a word, right? Antithetical to what the big book teaches us. So here's how I understand um, the broken memory. Normally, right, our memories protect us from dangerous things. So I have a terrible cat allergy and it just seems to happen that I always end up getting sponsees who have cats. Um, so let's talk about, oh, Meredith now, Meredith in Nashville. So I would love to go to Nashville and go visit her. But if she says, Janet, come to my house, I'm, I would love to, I'm about to say yes. But then stored in my memory are all these data points of cat-induced asthma attacks. So as I'm about to open my mouth, my memory grabs the data, generates a thought that runs across the bridge to my conscious mind and says, stop, danger. Don't do it, don't do it. You'll have an asthma attack. So my memory defends me. Let's talk about food. Um, when I was in college, I used to binge on these certain kind of cookies. They'd come in a box of 20. Every now and then someone will, someone from a meeting will say, was it this brand of cookie? Um, but anyway, it would come in a box of 20 and I would tell myself, I'm gonna go to the store, buy the box, and I'm just gonna have one or two. So there I would go to the store about to 
buy a box, have just one or two. And what happened 50 times? I would eat the whole box of 20 plus more. So here I go, a random day, telling myself I'm gonna go down to the Dwayne Reed drugstore, which is where I bought my cookies, buy a box of 20 and just have one or two. And so my memory grabs the data points. You know, she says she's just gonna have one or two and ends up eating the whole box plus. She hates herself the next day. She's gaining weight, she's miserable, stop. So my memory generates a thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind to say, stop, danger. You're not gonna be able to stop at one or two. You're gonna eat them all. You're gonna hate yourself, don't do it. Except when it came to food, the bridge was broken and the thought could not get across. My memory could not protect me. And I was powerless over eating all 20 cookies. Every time I thought I'm just gonna have one or two or I won't care. My memory, you know, the memory of how much I cared and how much pain I was in the next day, that couldn't get across either. And so I was hopeless. Didn't matter how much therapy, didn't matter how much desire. In fact, it doesn't even matter if I realized I had a broken bridge. You know, someone might think, oh, now I get why I eat because my memories can't get across to my conscious mind. So what? If someone is diabetic and they say, the reason I'm having all these blood sugar issues is because I have a defective pancreas, it doesn't make the blood sugar issues one bit better. All it does is get me motivated to do the work, right? Who, who's gonna go through chemo except the person who believes she has stage four cancer and that's her only option. So that's why we have to admit we're powerless because this program is hard, right? It says none of us like doing it. It's hard. So we admit we're powerless. We admit our lives are unmanageable and that gets us in the door, but we still have no power. Our first infusion of power comes with step two where we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. How do we do it? I mean, you may be like me. I realize now that I was a practical agnostic. I believed in God my entire life, but God was totally irrelevant. I didn't have a proper relationship. I guess it's like if I were a diabetic and I believed in insulin and the power of insulin but I didn't take the needle and fill it with the stuff and stick it in my arm. It didn't matter if I believed in insulin, I didn't have the proper relationship. So the chapter, We Agnostic, really talks about how to get a proper relationship with God. We look at the prejudices that we have against God and prejudices aren't just like not liking someone of a different race or religion. Their views about someone, in this case, God, that get in our way. Um, and we look at the clues for God in the book. It's like a, it's like a beautiful treasure hunt. Um, for instance, one of the lines says, um, the main object of this book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. So if this power is gonna solve my problem, it's gotta have a consciousness and be able to think 
right? The wind is a power greater than me, but can't think, got to think, has to be pretty smart because I have two master's degrees and I couldn't figure out how to solve this problem. Has to be strong because this illness was way stronger than I was and, and am. So this power has to be stronger. This power could be all this thing and not solve my problem. So if this power is going to solve my problem, this power, this God must care about me. What a beautiful thought, right? This God who can solve my problem has to care about me. So we look at that. Um, we go on our treasure hunt for God. We seek, seek, seek. We look at the things that are blocking us. Um, and this book promises us that deep down in all of us is the fundamental idea of God. It's there. So again, we work with our sponsors, we work with the book, we do some work to get a concept of God where we can then do step three, surrender our will and our life to this God. That means um, not waking up and saying, what do I feel like doing today? It's Father, God, what would you have me do today? And give me the strength to do it. That's what this program is about, right? So we surrender. We surrender our demands, our little plans and schemes. And we just try and say, what's God's will for me? And once we do that, and again, once we start with step two, something amazing happens. Like the food stops being so loud. It just does. And with each step, the food's voice gets progressively softer and softer. So step four, we start clearing away the wreckage of our past. We analyze our resentments, our fears, our harms, our past sex relations. And then in step five, we review it with someone else, generally our sponsors. We get all this stuff out of us. Step six and seven, we ask God to remove our defects of character. And, you know, for those of us who've been around a while, we, you know, we've heard that so often, like humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. That's quite amazing. Again, the God who like made a blueprint, like the mountains are going to go here. The oceans are going to go here, has the time and ability and desire to come into my heart and remove my defects so that I can have a better relationship with him and be of more use to others. And as a result of those two things, be way, way happier than I ever was. Then steps eight, we become willing to make amends. And step nine, we make our amends. We finish cleaning up our past. And then we get where we are now. If we are painstaking about this phase of our recovery, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. Amazed, that means like, shocked in a good way. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. So yeah, we may have been happy before, right? You know, our first date, our first kiss, you know, the birth of a child, things like that. But this is a different kind of happiness. It's like a happiness that doesn't depend on circumstances. And a new freedom, freedom from the food obsession. It says, we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. I mean, some of us have done some like really, like 
yucky things. I used to like take razor blades and cut myself up and fake that I was mugged or raped to get attention. You know what? I don't really, I mean, I regret doing it in that I caused people harm, but I talked about it at a meeting once. And then a young woman said to me, I did the same thing. I faked a rape as well. So my past, my ugly past can be used to help someone, right? That I was like a, um, a psycho and now I'm a functioning human being. What a tribute to God. I don't regret it. If I'd been good and wholesome and wonderful my, own, my whole life, wouldn't have a story. It says we will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. So what does that mean, serenity? You know, it's just that we're able to be calm. You know, we're able to feel peace in any situation. And our book gives us a formula for that, for serenity. On page 68, it says, we are in the world to play the role that God assigns. Just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? So it's just a formula. So if I'm not serene, I have to look at, am I not doing what I think God wants me to? Am I not trusting and relying on him? So we get serenity and it says, we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we've gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others, right? We talked about that. And our experience can benefit others, which leads to the next promise. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. I don't know if any of you guys were like me, right? I used to wonder, why am I here, God? Why am I here? What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose? What's my purpose? And I had no answers. Well, I have, um, I don't claim to have all the answers, but I have an answer that suffices for me. I'm here to grow closer to my creator and to help other people who want to do the same, specifically compulsive eaters. And it says self-pity will disappear. Self-pity for an addict is deadly. You know, in AA, they say, pour me, pour me, pour me a drink. In um, OA, I have a friend and she says, self-pity parties end with a cake. So, you know, we lose self-pity. Why? Because we're filled with gratitude. You can't be in gratitude and self-pity at the same time. It says, we will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. It's kind of self-explanatory. It's, but it's not because, at, well, at the beginning, we have to work on it. We have to really put our minds to, I have to do something for another person. In fact, sponsors often give sponsees that assignment. Go find something to do for someone else that's a self-sacrifice. And sitting in your nice air-conditioned house with your feet up, making an outreach call usually doesn't count. Um, something that's hard and takes effort. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. We're not so interested in things we were interested in before. And the things that we are interested go from being demands to hopes, wishes, requests, 
but not demands. Um, we stop feeling like, God, I did this for you, so you owe me A, B, and C. We realize God owes us nothing. It's all gift. And that keeps us in a state of perpetual gratitude. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. Doesn't say we're all gonna get rich, but we're not gonna be afraid. We're not gonna be afraid of being poor. And we're not going to be afraid of people because if I'm trying to do what I think God wants me to do, I don't have to be afraid of what anyone thinks or says about me. Now, again, this takes work, right? It says, if we are painstaking about it, and sometimes there's a lot of pain involved in it. That's why we have God and this book and each other and each other to talk to, to help us through those hard parts. Um, we will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. Life just gets a little easier, just does. We will suddenly realize God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. God's just like coming in and helping us. Um, and says, are these extravagant promises? Because I can just imagine, right? Reading them for the first time, it's like, no way, no way. They say, yeah, these aren't extravagant promises. They are being fulfilled. Again, the promises are a result. We don't go after the promises. They're a result of a life surrendered to God and a life dedicated to, uh, to service of others. And it says they will all mat always materialize if we work for them. Okay, and it says this thought brings us to step 10 which suggests we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. So right off the bat, I wanna say people get into debates, discussions about um, the nightly review. Is it step 10 or is it 11? And here, and I'll say, I don't know. And it doesn't matter. What matters is that we do it. It doesn't matter what we call it. Let's not get into to debates about it, okay? Um, so it says we're at step 10, where we set right any mistakes. We don't become perfect. That's sometimes um, I have to remind myself, right? Because I say, if I were really connected with God, I wouldn't have done that, thought that, said that, but we're going to make mistakes but it tells us what to do if we make mistakes. It says, we vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. Now, again, what does that mean? We start looking for our mistakes as we clean up the past in step nine, or as soon as we embark on the steps, don't know. Um, but then a beautiful line, we have entered the world of the spirit. And to me, that reminds me of like the Wizard of Oz when they go from black and white to color. We've entered the world in the spirit, which means we're living differently. And the best example I heard was something about gravity, right? Normally, I drop a pen, you know, it falls. We all ex know it. We expect it. Well, how come birds and airplanes don't fall out of the sky? Because they're subject to a different law, the law of aerodynamics, not the law of gravity. I guess once you hit a certain height or speed, um, something like that, we've entered the world of the spirit. 
which means simply we do what we think God wants us to, and we trust him that he will take care of us. That's what the world of the spirit is. We do his will, he takes care of us. And it tells us our job. Now that we've cleaned up the past, our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. Understanding closer to God and effectiveness, more use to others. And it says, this continues for the rest of our lives. We watch for the main things that get us in trouble, selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When we see them, we ask God, and remember, ask God means pray. We ask God to remove them, discuss it with someone, make amends, and then that's it. Then we start thinking about others, and it reminds us love and tolerance of others is our code, right? We love other people, which means sometimes we have to do self-sacrifice for their benefit, and we grow better at tolerating um, their defects of character. And then the great promise, the one we all came around here for anyway, we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol or food. Stop fighting it. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We're not insane around food anymore. And it tells us two ways sanity has returned. One, we will seldom be interested in liquor or food not on our food plan. And two, if tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. Now we don't sit there and say, oh, this is a hot flame. I think it might burn me. I probably should pull my hand away. It's automatic. That's what happened. It says we react sanely and normally and we will find this has happened automatically. We will see our new attitude toward liquor or food has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. I always find that an interesting line, right? Without any thought or effort on our part. I put a lot of thought and effort into my recovery, but I think what they're talking about is the thought and effort is just that. It's on developing a relationship with God and becoming more useful to others. We put our thought, our effort, our energy, our time into that, and God takes care of the food. And it says our attitude is given. It's a gift. It's a gift. It says it just comes. That is the miracle of it. Because at its essence, we can talk about rules and tools and food plans and phone calls and meetings and even steps. But at its essence, this program is about miracles. God coming down, breaking into our human existence and doing for us what we can't do for ourselves because he loves us. And it says, we feel as though we had been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. And here's the way I understand it. Like what is this position of neutrality, safe and protected? Well, imagine like this really nice king. And he says, come and live on my land. You know, live here and I'll take care of you. When the enemy attacks, I'll, you know, we'll put up the drawbridges and you will be safe and protected. So I'm safe and protected as long as I stay on the king's land. But, you know, what if I wander off out of resentment or fear or self-will? Well, when the enemy comes and attacks and the king pulls up the drawbridges, 
I'm not there safe and protected, not because the king stopped loving me, but because I left. And it says we are safe and protected. The problem is removed, doesn't exist. We're not cocky or afraid. That's how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. So long as we don't wander away from God through resentment, fear, selfishness, dishonesty, any of those things. If we do, thank God for the 10th step or the 11th step, whatever you call it. All you have to do is go to God, tell him you're sorry, ask him to remove the defect, discuss it with someone, make your amends. Then you're back on the king's land. And like Dorothy, right? Click her, her heels three times. There's no place like home. And she gets home. We can always go home. So then it tells us the only thing that's easy in this program. It is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. Oh, I've been doing great for so long. I don't have to do this anymore. And it says we are headed for trouble if we do for alcohol is a subtle foe. Very interesting how they personify alcohol or food, a subtle foe, um, because there's really like a negative, not very nice force behind alcoholism or compulsive eating. Um, and it tells us we're not cured. We have a daily reprieve, a reprieve, a stay of execution, contingent contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual conditions. And it says, every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all our activities. And I think two things here. One, how amazing is it that God has a will for me, that he wants me to carry into my life? And two, what a gracious and merciful God that is. Because as I read that line, I think of all the times, the many times every day when I don't, I'm not focused on carrying God's will into all my activities. And yet he's forgiving. When I say, God, I'm sorry. He says, okay, the first time, the hundredth time, the hundred thousandth time. He is a merciful God. That says, um, a prayer that we can all use to help us every day. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. So when we're in a pickle, how can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. And it says, these are thoughts which must, which have to go with us constantly. Constantly thinking, how can I best serve you, God? Thy will, not mine, be done. And it says, use your willpower here. That's the proper way to use willpower. And it says, okay, we've already talked a lot about receiving strength, inspiration, and direction from him who has all knowledge and power. He has it all, but he's more than happy to share all knowledge and power. It says, if we've carefully followed directions, not take what you want and leave the rest, follow the directions in this book, we've begun to sense the flow of his spirit into us. How beautiful is that? Like um, an infusion, God's spirit, starts flowing into me, you know, like an IV or something flowing into me, the spirit of the living God. And it says to some extent, we've become God conscious, right? We realize I'm not obsessing about food anymore. This didn't come from me. There has to be 
another power. There has to be a God who's helping me. And it says, okay, we've begun to develop this vital sixth sense, this awareness of God, but we must go further. And that means more action. So we will stop right here and we'll pick this up. Melissa, Thursday, Thursday, talk about um, step 11 and prayer and meditation and how we can deepen our um, love relationship with God. Stop recording.